Well, God continues to lead us from his word, reading from Psalm 22, starting in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. Well, brothers and sisters, as Stuart comes to open up God's word and to preach to us, listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God, understand it, and tell it to your children. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the 12th chapter this morning, so Luke chapter 12. And our text will be verses 13 to 21. So turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. This is the word of Almighty God, so as is our custom and as is fitting for his great majesty, please stand for the reading of his holy word. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to him, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have brought us to this very moment in, in our lives, this very moment in the history of the world. Father, we pray that you would do mighty things through your word now as it is proclaimed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1962, two, David, or, uh, two uh, American scientists, David Bernays and Charles Sawyer, were in the Ancash region of Peru, in and around the city of Yungay. Earlier that year, an avalanche had killed 4,000 people, and they were surveying the area, surveying the mountains, and they discovered that uh, one of the uh, sides of one of the mountains had been compromised by a glacier. They published their findings in the local newspaper, and the uh, government of the city of Yungay did not like what they had to say. They commanded the people of the city that they were not to speak of this potential impending danger, uh, and they even commanded Bernays and Sawyer that if they would not retract their article from the newspaper, that they would be imprisoned. Obviously, Bernays and Sawyer were not going to retract, so they fled from the area. And for all intents and purposes, life went on as, as normal in the city of Yungay 
until 1970, when an earthquake struck in the Pacific Ocean off of the coast of Peru, and that rock face that had been identified as uh, being a, a risk came loose, and 2.8 billion cubic feet of water, mud, rock, and snow came barreling down at 170 miles per hour, completely destroyed the city of Yungay, killed some 20,000 people in the city. When all was taken into account in the surrounding areas, the avalanche had killed some 70,000 people. It's considered to be the deadliest avalanche in the history of the world. Obviously, uh, a, a very tragic example of a warning going unheeded. There are others that we could speak of. Perhaps you're familiar with Jack Phillips, the senior wireless operator on the Titanic the night that it sunk. It received warnings from the steamship Musaba and from the SS Californian that there was ice in the area. Again, the warnings went unheeded with tragic uh, results. As you know, the Titanic sank. Some 1,500 people perished. Or what about NASA? That they heard the warnings from Roger Boyce Jolly and other engineers at Morton Fiacall that the Challenger should not be launched in cold weather, ignored the warnings, proceeded with the launch. You know that the spacecraft disintegrated and all seven crew members on board were killed. Now it's easy for us to, to, to look back, right? We say hindsight is 2020. It's easy for us to see the, see the warning, to hear about it, to hear about the, the, the tragedy that happened afterwards, and to look back and see the folly of, of the people who ignored very clear warnings of very clear and present danger. Well, we should ask ourselves when receiving a warning, what is the source? Who is the one that is giving the warning? Should we heed the warning that is being given to us? And family of God, we have a very clear warning in this passage before us today. It's not a, a warning from two American scientists who are in Peru. It's not a warning from other ships in the Atlantic Ocean. It's not a warning from engineers that have crafted a, a, a vessel to travel into space, but it is a warning from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a warning about an avalanche that is threatening to destroy our city. It's not a warning about icebergs that are threatening to sink our ship. It's not a warning about cold weather that is threatening to disintegrate our spacecraft. But it is a warning against greed that threatens our very souls. And it does as a service. It behooves us to pay attention, to give heed to this warning before us this morning as it's given in verse 15, where Jesus tells us to beware and to be on guard against every form of greed. The family of God, he not only gives us this warning, but he also gives us the reason. He tells us why we ought to be on guard. And that is also found in 15, uh, verse 15, where he tells us, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. What Jesus is telling us is, look, your possessions cannot provide you with life. So you ought not to trust in them. You ought not to seek them. You ought not to be greedy for more and more and more because they cannot give life. Possessions cannot provide life. And that is the main thrust of the passage. And it's the main thing that I want us to focus on as we work our way through this passage this morning. That Jesus warns us to beware of greed because possessions cannot provide life. Jesus warns us to beware of greed because possessions cannot provide life. Uh, we have a very simple outline this morning. It's a two-part outline, so hopefully you can easily follow along. First, we're going to look at the warning against greed stated in verses 13 to 15. 
And then we'll transition to looking at the warning against greed illustrated in verses 16 to 21. So again, two-part outline, 13 to 15, and then 16 to 21. Let's start now with the first point in verse 13, the warning against greed stated, uh, uh, initially looking at the prompting of the warning in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So here we see the prompting of the warning that someone from the crowd has called out to Jesus asking for his help. This is a a large crowd. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples. So this is an enormous crowd. A a large amount of people have, have come to hear the word of God, have come to hear the word of Christ, and even to the extent that they are, they are trampling upon one another, and this man is not paying attention to a word that Jesus is saying. All he cares about is his wealth. All he cares about is his inheritance. He has, Jesus has not been talking about money. He has not been talking about family disputes. He's not been talking about inheritances. He's been talking about giving a testimony before man of standing up for his name and the kingdom. And this man is clearly not paying attention. And I wonder how many of us are, are, are burdened or are distracted from hearing the word of God, from hearing the word of Christ, because our minds are set on earthly things. That we have our minds set upon this earth, and while we're here, the word of God is being proclaimed. Our minds are thinking about investments, they're thinking about that next deal, you're thinking about your house, you're thinking about a hundred other things that pertain to this life and have nothing to do with the word of God that is being proclaimed. That was certainly the case of this man. He was not listening to the sermon that Jesus was preaching. And he interrupts Jesus' sermon, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to, to divide the family inheritance with me. We see that what had, had prompted this was that he wanted Jesus to give some sort of judgment against his brother in an inheritance dispute. And unfortunately, this is, this is very frequent. This is something that happens more often than we would care to see that when someone leaves an inheritance to their, to their heirs, that it becomes an opportunity for fighting brother against brother, sister against sister, uh, dad against uncle, that families are torn apart by inheritance disputes. I've even thought soberly as, as studying through this text, I wonder if the, the inheritance that I hope to leave for my daughters one day will be the very cause of division between them. May it never be. Lord, save us from such such uh, such tragedy. But this man has a dispute with his brother. It's most likely that he is the younger brother. So we know from the book of Deuteronomy that the, the firstborn received a, a double portion. So in the inheritance laws of Israel, it wasn't an even division. The firstborn would receive twice as much as the other children. So most likely this man is the younger brother coming to Jesus and asking Jesus for an even split Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me evenly. And Jesus is having none of it. He tells him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. He does not want to give any sort of uh, false representations or false ideas about his kingdom. And so he is not at this point in time going to entertain acting as judge or arbitrator in this man's personal affair. But he does use this as an opportunity, as a teaching lesson, to teach about greed. And that is what he does in verse 15, where he turns from the man, and now he begins to address the entire crowd. And it says, Then he said to them, 
Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. This is a very strong warning, family of God. First, he tells us that we are to watch out. We are to watch out and to be on guard. Not only to to watch out and to be aware of greed, but we are also to guard against it. We are to set a sentry on our heart that it might not make inroads into our lives. This is something that we need to be aware of. Don't sleep on greed. Don't think that it is something that cannot creep in and and wreak havoc in your life. Jesus is, is graciously warning us, telling us, watch out, beware, be on guard against every form of greed. The Greek word that is used for greed is a compound of of two words. The first word means to have. The second word means more. So this word literally means to have more, to want more, to never be satisfied, to always want more and more and more. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15 and 16. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol, the infertile womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. How many of us are just like Sheol and the earth that will continue to drink water and never say enough? We always, we, we, we don't want, uh, we're not satisfied with what God has given us, and our hearts are greedy for more and more and more. We are like the leech's two daughters. All we can say is give and give. He also tells us to beware and be on guard against every form of this. The focus is on material possessions here, and we're going to focus on that as we work our way through the passage. But he's telling us to be on guard against every form of greed, every form of discontentment, everything in your life where you could want more and more and more, whether it be power or prestige, the praise of men, whatever it might be, Jesus is saying, be on guard against every form of greed. It is the material that has prompted the warning. It is the material that, that uh, the material possessions that Jesus is going to illustrate. So that is what we will focus on as we work our way through this. But as I mentioned in the introduction, Jesus not only gives this warning against greed, this sin of desiring more and more, but he also gives the reason. And actually, before we look at the reason, I should also note that perhaps your translation doesn't have the word greed. Perhaps you're using the ESV. I think the New King James or the King James uses the word covetousness. Beware and be on guard against every form of covetousness. It's a decent translation, but I don't think it's the, it, it's the best one. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a different word used in the Ten Commandments for covetousness. It's not the same word. The word used in the Ten Commandments is one of, of seeking or placing your desire upon something. It's not tied in with this word to have more and more. Obviously, we know they're related. They're both good translations. But typically, I, at least me, when I think of covetousness, because of the context of the Ten Commandments, I typically think of desiring what belongs to someone else. Where you can be greedy without necessarily being covetous. You can be greedy without necessarily wanting what belongs to someone else. You can be discontent and want more and more and more without necessarily wanting what belongs to someone else. So I think that the better translation is greed. And family of God, it is this word also, uh, by way of note, that is used in the scriptures when it tells us that greed is idolatry. It's a serious sin and it's a serious warning that we need to give heed to. But Jesus gives us the reason for the warning. 
in verse 15b where he tells us, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That he is telling us, don't seek after material possessions, don't be greedy, because those possessions cannot provide you with life. And there's an inference here, isn't there? That is, that that life is good and that we ought to pursue the things that lead to life. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how many times I've prayed to God, God, please do not let me waste my life. I don't want to waste my days here on earth. I want my life to count for eternity. Please keep me from pursuing vain pursuits. Don't let me spend my days grasping and and chasing after the wind. Perhaps you've prayed that same prayer. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, is don't pursue after possessions and greed because they cannot provide you with life. They cannot provide you with spiritual life. They cannot provide you with physical life. They cannot even give you the full joy of life. How many people have an abundance and they're miserable? Our joy, our life is in Christ and we need to seek it in him. Well, there's the warning. So let's look now at this illustration that he gives us in verses 16 to 21. So moving to the second point, and that is the warning against greed illustrated. We should note that this parable that is often called the parable of the rich fool, that the purpose of the parable isn't so much to demonstrate for us a greedy person. There is a temptation in working our way through it is to try to find all the ways that this man is greedy. That's not the purpose of the parable. Uh, Greg has spoken to us often about interpretation of parables and that what you want to find is is the fruit. You want to find the nugget of it and, and focus upon that. And the focus of this parable is to give us an example of someone who is exceedingly rich yet perished. That's the point, that possessions cannot give life. This is Jesus' exhibit A. He has given us the warning. He has given us the reason for the warning. And now he is illustrating that reason by, by showing us a man who is exceedingly rich, but yet his riches could not deliver him from death. I was reading the uh, Forbes uh, billionaires list. 17 billionaires died last year. Lee Kun Hee of Samsung Group, net worth at death, $17.3 billion dollars. at the time of death. Joseph Safra of Banco Safra in Brazil, net worth at death, $23.2 billion. Whitney McMillan of Cargill, net worth at death, $5.1 billion. Sumner Redstone of Viacom CBS, net worth at death, $2.6 billion. Randall Rollins of Rollins Inc., that's the Orkin people, the bug bug people, net worth at death, $4.7 billion. And the list goes on of billionaire after billionaire who died with a host of riches that could not save them from death. So let's look now at this example that the Lord gives us in this parable. Let's look at it together. We're going to see it in three parts. First, the prosperity of the rich man, then the plans of the rich man, and then the poverty of the rich man. So let's look first at the prosperity of this rich man in verse 16. It says, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. Note that this man was already rich to begin with. He, he doesn't say that the, the, the land of a man made him exceedingly rich. It's the land of a rich man. He's rich out the gate. And it's, that's often the case, family of God, that the rich become richer. It takes money to make money, as they say. And the rich can use their wealth, they can use their resources to become richer. 
Not only was he already a rich man, but it says that he had land, that the land of a rich man was very productive. The word used here isn't just a word for a field. It's actually the word in modern Greek that's used for an entire country. This man had a vast, enormous estate. He possessed an enormous amount of land. And it says that his land was very productive. He was not only rich, he not only had a ton of property, but also he had this this bumper crop where he received more and more wealth upon himself. And I think we, we need to be careful here because there is a temptation, again, as I said, is potentially greedy or sinful. But there's not necessarily something intrinsically sinful in, in being rich. We have examples in Scripture of people who are rich, even uh, godly people who are rich. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob. We also have Job, who is the, the richest man in the East, but yet is, is given to us as an example of virtue and righteousness. And even in the case of, of Isaac, Isaac received a great uh, uh, a bumper crop from his field as well. Listen to Genesis 26. It says, Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundred times as much, a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. So we need to be careful in, in faulting this man for having success. Uh, the, again, the purpose of the parable is to show an example of someone who is exceedingly wealthy and yet perishes. And so first and foremost, Jesus is, is showing us how wealthy this man really is. He was already rich, he has an enormous amount of country, and then he has this, this enormous crop come in. Such to the extent that he, he doesn't have anywhere to store it. And there we begin to see the plans of this rich man in verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? We see this man is reasoning within himself. He is planning, What am I to do with all my riches? If you notice, first and foremost, that riches can bring anxiety. We often think that if we became rich, all of our troubles, all of our problems would go away. I understand that there's a certain amount of anxiety, there's a certain amount of stress that comes with poverty as we are anxious about what we are going to eat or drink or wear. But don't think for a moment, family of God, that if you become rich, that all your problems will go away. There's a whole new set of problems that comes. That if you were to to become rich, then you would have to figure out, what am I going to do with my wealth? If you were to receive an inheritance, you might ask, what should I do? Should I put it in the stock market? What if the stock market crashes? Should I put in real estate? What if the real estate market crashes? What should I do with my wealth? So here we see this man's anxiety about what he is to do with all of his possessions that he owns. And he devises a plan. He says, this is what I will do. I know what to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. We see that that this man has a plan to tear down his barns, that his current barns are not enough. Again, we begin to see his wealth, that he has an abundance of barns, such and that he has so much that his barns won't even hold it. He needs to build even bigger ones. Again, this man is exceedingly wealthy. We also see that his plans have no reference to God whatsoever. In fact, his plans are very much focused upon himself. It's interesting how many times he says, I or my, in this passage. Listen again. He says, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? 
Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. This man is completely focused upon himself. There is no acknowledgement of God and his plans. There's no acknowledgement of others in his plans that he is, he is selfish. He is very much like that fool, that rich fool of the Old Testament, Nabal, whose name is fool. Listen to 1 Samuel 25. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? That he was selfish and self-centered and refused to acknowledge that God is the one who had given him his wealth, that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that every single thing we have is a blessing from the hand of the Lord, that he owns it all and we are merely stewards of the resources that he has given us. So this man is not taking God into account in his, in his thoughts, in his plans. But it is interesting that he does come to the point where he says enough. If you recall that the sin of greed is to never say enough, to always want more and more and more, that this man comes to the point in his life where he says, I have enough. I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to sit down and to enjoy all that God has given me. And, it, and on the surface, this, this might seem like a, a very godly thing, a very good thing, where he says to himself to eat and to drink and to be merry. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says, Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun, during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. It's the same words, to eat and to drink and to be merry. The book of Ecclesiastes is telling us this is what we should do. This is what God has given us as our reward from our labors, is to enjoy all that he has given us. Ecclesiastes 8.15, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, drink, and be joyful. Same words, eat, drink, and be merry. And this will stand by him in his labor throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So initial take, it seems that this man is, has, has a degree of, of, of wisdom. He knows that, that he should enjoy the things that God has given him. But here's the problem, family of God, that he was presumptuous. He presumed that he would have life tomorrow. He had forgotten what James has said, where James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Again, this man had taken no thought for God and his plans in his life. He was presuming that simply because he had an abundance, simply because he had barns full, that he would live for many years and be able to enjoy them. And that is where we see the folly of this man. And it's also where we need to take inventory of our own lives and ask ourselves, are we taking God into account in our plans? Are we thinking of eternity do we think of him in all things? Do we acknowledge him in all things? Proverbs chapter 3, that he might direct our paths. I was listening to a sermon in, in preparation, and, 
Alistair Begg had, had mentioned that one way to get people to think about eternity is to ask a very simple question. And that's the question, then what? It goes something like this. Children, do you have plans? What are your plans? You say, oh, well, I, I want to graduate high school. Okay, great. Then what? Well, I'll, I'll graduate high school. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree. Perfect. Then what? Well, I'll start my career. Okay, then what? I will meet a, meet a spouse. I'll start a family. I'll have children. Okay, then what? Well, I'll work for many years, and maybe one day I'll retire. Okay, then what? Well, I'll enjoy my retirement. Okay, then what? Well, I guess I'll die. Okay, then what? Then what? Are you taking eternity into account? Are you taking the Lord into account in your plans? Are you acknowledging Him in, in, your, in your plans for your days? Are you acknowledging the fact that you might not be guaranteed tomorrow? I can't tell you how many people I know who have died before the age of 40. I can't tell you how many people I know that have died before the age of 30. And I even know people who have died before the age of 20. Nels was just telling us in the preparation and in, in prayer that Caleb, a man in his church, died at the age of 18 this weekend in his car, uh, uh, crashed his car and died. That tomorrow is not guaranteed, family of God. Acknowledge God in your plans. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. Have eternity upon your minds. Do not be like this man who thought that his, his wealth, who thought that his possessions could sustain him for many years to come without any reference or any thought to God. And that really is the, 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 the crux of it, that this man was presumptuous, that he was, he was foolish. As we will see, God call him a very fool to his face. And that leads us now to the poverty of this rich man. Even though this man was exceedingly rich in, in one sense, he was exceedingly poor in another. First, we see that he was poor in wisdom. He had told himself that he had many goods laid up for many years to come, presuming that his wealth would sustain him. But God says to him in verse 20, You fool! God calls this man a fool, that it was folly for him to trust in his riches. It was folly for him to trust in his wealth, to trust in his barns, to trust in his crops, to trust that he had years and years to come simply because he had wealth. The word used here is the same word that's used in Psalm 14.1. You should all know it well. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That to live a life without acknowledgement of God, without reference to God, to plan your life presumptuously without thinking about God is atheistic. It's to, it's, it's to exist as if there is no God. It's to be as the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And God calls a spade a spade and he says, man, you have been a fool. You have lived as if I did not exist. You have lived as if there was no eternity. You have trusted in your wealth and you are a fool. There are many who live this way today. I have become very interested in uh, Silicon Valley's pursuit of eternal life. I, it, it's, it's become something that I, I notice more and more articles on. There was recently just a, a company formed that uh, had heavily investment from Jeff, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, the founder of Amazon. 
this, this company, I can't remember, I think it's Altos Labs or something. There's another a company where Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, has invested heavily in. If you just go to Google and you put in Silicon Valley's quest for eternal life, you will be shocked at these articles you will find of people pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into companies and into research trying to reverse death. Now, I'm not against science. I'm not against uh, the, the progress of, of health. We have had major strides in many different areas. We can do remarkable things uh, to prolong life. But if we think that we can conquer death through our wealth or through science, we are fools. We are living an atheistic worldview. We are, we are living as if there is no God because it is a, a pursuit that fails to recognize that our life is more than simply our bodies, that our life is more than simply our physical makeup, that we have a soul, and that God is the one who controls our souls. God is the one who kills and makes alive. That there is a far greater problem than disease that we need to address. And it is the, the issue of sin that we need to be reconciled to God who has said the wages of sin is death and to pursue uh, uh, eternal life through any other means besides the one that God has appointed is a fool's errand. Listen to the scriptures, to what God has appointed. First John chapter 5, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son does not have the life. If you do not have Jesus Christ, you do not have life. If you are pursuing eternal life through wealth, through uh, laboratories, through freezing of bodies and brains and all the crazy things that people are doing today to try to conquer death apart from Jesus Christ, you are on a fool's errand because life is in him. John chapter 1, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind. John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has conquered death. Acts chapter 4, God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Romans 6, 9, Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ is the one who kills. He is the one who makes alive. He is the only one who can give us eternal life because he is the only one who has conquered death. He is the only one who has died to rise again, and now he is the one who holds the, the, the keys to death in Hades. He is the only one who can open the door to deliver us from the curse of death. Wealth cannot do it. Riches cannot do it. Possessions cannot do it. And it is the errand of a fool to think that they can. And so God calls this man a fool for thinking that his possessions could somehow sustain and give him life. And this family of God really is at the heart of the passage, is, is that this man is going to perish in spite of all his riches, as we see that he was not only poor in terms of wisdom, he was also poor in terms of his time. Where God says to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. He did not have another 24 hours to live. 
he was to die that very night. And obviously this presses firmly upon us, family of God, that we need to consider the fact that we might die this very night. That tomorrow is not guaranteed. If you were to die tonight, are you ready? You have heard the question asked before, I'm going to ask it again. If you were to die tonight and God should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you respond to God if he should, if he should ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Hopefully you have been listening. And if your response is that because Jesus lived, because Jesus died, because Jesus rose from the dead, because Jesus is at your right hand as my representative, and he has promised me eternal life, and I know he has conquered death, then life is before you. You will enter into paradise. But if you are trusting in anything besides Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in your wealth, if you are trusting in your possessions, if you are trusting in yourself, in your own righteousness, in anything besides him, I testify against you this day that you will surely perish. Look to Christ. Look to nothing else. Because it could be this very night, family of God, that one of us dies, that one of us perishes. May God forbid such a thing. May he give us all long life. But may we soberly consider this. This man was not only poor in wisdom, not only poor in time, but ultimately he became poor in possessions. As God said this very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? What are you going to do with your wealth now? Who's going to own your wealth after you perish? In the words of John Piper, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You do not take your possessions with you. As they say across the pond, there are no pockets in shrouds. You cannot take your possessions with you. Naked, I came from my mother's womb, says Job, and naked I shall go. Naked we all came into this world. Naked we shall all leave this world. And that is why Jesus tells us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Family of God, this is a sober warning. We need to give heed to it. And Jesus wraps this up at the end where he says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It is possible to be rich in this world and to be absolutely impoverished towards God. Listen to Revelation chapter 3. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I solve to apply to your eyes so that you may see that there's a real possibility of having an abundance of possessions in this world, of being very rich in this world, and yet being absolutely impoverished and poor, to be an absolute pauper and a beggar. And Jesus has, has demonstrated that for us. So we, we have seen, family of God, in this passage, a very clear warning from Jesus to be on guard, to watch out against greed. He has given us the reason for it, and that is that possessions cannot provide life. And then he illustrated it through this, this parable, the parable of the rich fool, his exhibit A, to show us a man who is exceedingly wealthy, but yet perished. His, his money could not provide him with physical life, 
and his money could not sustain him or give him uh, eternal life, that he absolutely perished in the midst of all his wealth. And so as we, we close, as we wrap up this passage, I want to look at verse 21 one more time. It says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As, as we wrap up, I want, to, I want each and every one of you to ask yourself, what type of man, what type of woman am I? Am I one who is storing up wealth for myself and is not rich toward God? Or am I one who is trusting in God and is storing up my riches in heaven? As Jesus has said, that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. And we need to remember what a, what a sober and strong warning this is from the Lord. We are every, every, each and every one of us should take heart. We should begin to take inventory. Remember the warnings that I mentioned in the, in, in, in the introduction. The warning that went unheeded about the avalanche. The warning that went unheeded about the ice. The warnings that went unheeded about the cold weather. Family of God, that avalanche may have killed 70,000 people extremely tragic but I can tell you that greed has slain its millions that we need to be on guard against this warning we need to give heed to it we need to listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ we need to watch out and we need to put a guard in our hearts against greed but where are you today as you take inventory has greed seeped into your heart have you failed to keep a watch have you failed to be on guard against it Has it made inroads into your heart? Are you greedy this day? Are you one who is discontent, who is dissatisfied, and is always saying more and more and more? Are you like the leech's two daughters, who all you know how to say is give and give? If you are greedy this day, ask yourself why. What is it about possessions? What is it about about wealth? What is it about riches that has attracted you? Remember, family of God, that it's idolatry. It's idolatry to trust in something besides God. It's idolatry to love something besides God. We need to flee from greed. We need to flee from every form of it. But if you are convicted, as I know I, I certainly am as I, as I look at this passage, I hope that you would not confuse conviction and condemnation. Listen, you can be convicted by the Spirit. The Spirit can, can work in your heart to reveal sin to you, show you areas where you need to turn but I hope you do not hear condemnation from the voice of our Savior. If you are in Him, if you are trusting in Him, this ought to be something that you view as a gracious, loving warning from a Heavenly Father, from a, a, a loving Savior, from a good shepherd, from a husband who loves you. Listen, you don't warn people that you hate. You warn people that you love. You warn your children. You warn your spouse. You warn your loved ones to watch out. And that is what's happening here. I hope you can see the grace of Christ in this passage. That Jesus is, is graciously coming to us and saying, Look, I love you. I care for you. There's a danger here. And I want you to watch out for it. I want you to beware of it. I want you to, to have it on your mind so that it does not wreak havoc in your life. Family of God, let's set our minds upon Christ. As we close, listen to Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, listen, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. As we go forth from here, will you keep your eyes focused on Christ, who is your life? Do not be distracted by the things of this world, by the things of this earth. Set your minds on Christ. He is your life, both in this life and the one to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a, what a, a, a passage this is and how convicting it is. Uh, we, we have to confess, I'm sure, that each and every one of us, in some sense, has been guilty of worldliness, has been guilty of setting our affections, setting our time, setting our heart upon the things of this world, that many of us have fallen victim and, and fallen into the trap of, of riches, as you have told us that whoever desires to be rich has fallen into a temptation and a snare. That, Father, many of us are ensnared by this. We pray that in your grace that you would cut the net, that you would release us, and that you would help us once again to set our minds on things above where Christ is, that our minds and our focus would be, would be set on him because he is our life. He is the one who has died and risen again. He is the one who is seated at your right hand and our lives are hidden in him that we live because he lives. So help us to put all of our trust, all of our confidence, all of our focus, all of our affection, all of our worship upon him this day. We pray in his blessed name. Amen. All right, well, let's close out our our time of worship using Hark the Glad Sound. It's in the purple sheet in your insert. Hark the Glad Sound.